This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, this is one of many verses showing us that God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ goes all the way back to eternity past and on earth, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. My next guest points out that the scarlet thread of redemption is interwoven through the entire story of the Bible, and that is so exciting. We're going to learn more about about it now from Skip Heitzig, pastor, teacher of Calvary Church and author of Bloodline, Tracing God's Rescue Plan from Eden to Eternity. And Skip, it's wonderful to talk to you again. How are you? Janet, great to talk to you. Hope all is well. Everything is great, especially because I love this subject. This is one of my favorite subjects, looking at the Bible as a whole and saying it's Jesus from start to finish. It sure is. All 66 books of the Bible are tied together with a theme, a mega theme, an overarching theme, and that's just as you said, that scarlet thread or the bloodline of redemption. That's right. Now, when we go back to the early chapters of Genesis, that's where we see the picture of the gospel begin to emerge. But when you talk about the scarlet thread and people think about the blood of Jesus that was shed, do you see a direct correlation there between the blood of Christ and what went on, for example, in the early chapters of Genesis? Yes. In fact, the earliest chapters of Genesis, the third chapter, is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel preached, because God made a promise after the fall of mankind. He promised to restore what had fallen and what was broken through a promised seed. He said to Satan after the fall, he said that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head or crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So right there is the, is the promise that Satan's dominion would have an end, and someone would come as the rescuer of humanity. Right. Well, now, when you talk about Genesis 12, for example, where the Lord is talking to Abraham and making him a great nation and promising his name will be made great, how does that tie into the redemption that we find in Jesus? Because, again, Abraham, the patriarch, is, is such a large figure in, in biblical history. Right, and in Judaism. And when he said um, that, I will bless you, I will multiply you, uh, he said that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yes. And now that means far more than just you will produce Jewish people and they will be a great blessing and they will win Nobel Peace Prizes and they will (laughs) write great books. What he meant specifically is if you tie all that in together is that through the promised seed, Jesus Christ, God would bless the world. And he blessed the world by offering the world a lifeline. The bloodline that we write about is the lifeline through Jesus Christ. And how will he bless the world? Well, 
anybody who puts their faith in him, it's that simple, can be saved from an eternal hell and be admitted into an eternal heaven. Amen. And it's right there, too, in Genesis 15, Skip. This always gets me when I go back, and of course, it's reiterated in the New Testament. But it says right there, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited Mm -hmm. to him as righteousness. There's the gospel right there in Genesis 15. Indeed, and that's the, that's the phrase that Paul plays up so large when he writes the book of Romans, that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. Yes, for sure. Oh, it's so neat to see that. Now, when we come to Exodus, and obviously we won't have time to go to every single book of the Bible, but Exodus, I think, is such an important one. There is Jesus. I taught a women's Bible study on Exodus a number of years ago, and I was going through all the material, and it blew me away. Even going into the study, I knew there was a lot of foreshadowing of Jesus, and even I was blown away. Like, there was way more foreshadowing than I even anticipated. It really is overwhelming in Exodus. It sure is. You know, what I think about in all this, in Genesis and Exodus, of course, Exodus is the Passover. That's the kind of the big mega theme. There's so much more. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it says that he met two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were were downcast. They were bummed out because they only thought that their Savior died. They didn't know about the resurrection. And he said, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And then it says, beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all things in the scripture concerning himself. So that's one Bible study I wish was recorded, or at least was written. (laughs) But he he surely must have uh, stopped at at things like Genesis 3 and Genesis 15, certainly Genesis 22, Abraham almost offering Isaac up on the very same mountain Jesus would die on. Then, of course, he would have stopped in the book of Exodus, because Exodus is about exiting from slavery, and the emblem of that is the shed blood of a lamb that is smeared on the doorposts and lintels. So it's deliverance through shed blood of an innocent victim. And then Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 5 even says Christ is our Passover. So he makes the correlation. So we don't have to guess because the New Testament authors themselves say, no, that was a foreshadowing of what would come in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, absolutely. And you think of Christ in the upper room sharing Passover with his disciples for the last time and saying, this is my body, this is my blood. We see this picture every single Sunday when we take communion. Yes, Yes, and Jesus, when he took the Passover, uh, he died on the Passover day. The day of Passover is when Jesus gave his life. So it's unmistakable. It it is. It really is. Skip, talk a little bit, if you would, about when we get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, for example, you have the giving of the law now being put into practice. We see the application of God's law, the need for sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And yet we know from Hebrews that the blood of goats and lambs does not take away sin. So for those who kind of look at the Old Testament, they don't know it so well, but they say this is intriguing. I see the foreshadowing of Jesus. But if it didn't take away sins, why was it that God's people had to sacrifice these animals. What what was the, the reasoning there that you see outlined in the, the rest of the Pentateuch? Yeah, well, the, the whole book of Hebrews is based upon that system of sacrifices in Leviticus, so you really wouldn't even understand the New Testament book of Hebrews unless you had a working knowledge of Leviticus and some of those other books that surround it. But basically, the law set a standard 
that we could never live up to. And what it does by setting that kind of an unreachable standard is it drives us to seek relief. Like we go, okay, so I keep breaking the law and I still need to uh, cover this with the blood of an animal, but it's ongoing and it never ends. So it drives the person, Paul said, to seek relief from a higher standard. Hmm. And so the way Paul um, sums it up, he says the law was a task master. Yeah. It drove us hard, and it, he called it the curse of the law. He, he, said, he said you could never keep it, but the purpose of it was like a schoolmaster. It drives you or points you to somebody else or something else. So what the law does, basically, it amplifies our need, but it can't fix our need. So it's sort of like going up when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. I did it this morning. I looked in the mirror and I go, I need help. <laughs> you know, I, I do that, too. So, <laughs> so, so the mirror revealed the truth. The mirror told me I need help, but the, I never take a mirror off the wall and wash myself with a mirror. Right. or scrub myself with the mirror. It only is there to reveal that I need help, but it can't give me the help that I need. So um, I look into the law. I see that I need help. I see that it's a standard I cannot attain. But I look to Jesus, who lived the perfect life that I could never live, and then he died for me substitutionarily, and he took all the sin uh, that I ever committed on himself in one single act, so all of that is summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the law shows me I have a need. Uh, Jesus comes along and provides what is needed by that one act, and I place my faith in him. So the law does serve a purpose. It shows me that I'm broken. It shows me that I'm dirty. And it shows me that I need help. Very well said. Well, Skip Heitzig with us. We'll come back talking about his book, Bloodline. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. Every day we make choices, but when a young woman with an unplanned pregnancy has to choose between the life or death of her baby, this will be one of the biggest choices she will ever make. This young mom came to a preborn center under pressure to terminate the life of her 22-week-old baby and was offered choices. When I sort of started talking with Carolyn, she was helping me decide what I can do, like giving me options, that there's just not abortion. After meeting her baby on ultrasound and receiving the love and support she needed at a preborn center, this mom had a heart change. Right here, you can see this is the outline of her face. Her hand is right here, her arm and her leg. I was so shocked. I was really happy. I couldn't believe that I have a little child in me. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms to their preborn babies. For $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. There is that scarlet thread of redemption running all the way through the Bible. Jesus Christ is Lord, and it is proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation. We are talking about it with Skip Heitzig, pastor, teacher of Calvary Church and author of Bloodline, Tracing God's Rescue Plan from Eden to Eternity. We're talking a little bit about the law and how the law shows us, as the New Testament reiterates, Skip, that we need Christ. It's a school teacher or a taskmaster to show us how we need Christ and we need to flee to Christ for salvation. When we get to the part in the Old Testament about the temple, this is fascinating to me as well, just the setup of the temple, how you had to have the high priest and only high high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And then you connect that, for example, to the day Jesus died when he finally took his last breath and the veil of the temple was ripped in two and it was from the top down. Can you connect those dots a little bit and comment on that? Because that, that to me, is so profound, it's almost hard to find the words to describe the profundity of it all. Yeah, the temple was set up basically uh, to show not only the holiness of God, but the restriction of access that man had to God. You you and I couldn't, if we lived in the Old Testament time, just decide, hey, I'm going to run into the Holy of Holies and hang out with God and be intimate with God. You couldn't. You had to go through a series of sacrifices. There had to be a mediator, so you needed a priesthood. You needed a high priest. He couldn't go in there himself except once a year and very with, with, with trepidation and fear, lest he go in unprepared and he himself be killed. So, you know, God was setting up this, this series of buffers, so to speak, that um, men could go into one place, women could go into another, priests could go into another, the high priest could go into another. So it was very restrictive. And God could be approached, but only on the basis of blood. Blood had to be shed. So, lo and behold, Jesus dies on Passover, and when he dies... The veil that was the great symbol of separation uh, rips, and it doesn't rip from bottom to top, but top to bottom. It was enormous. It was, uh, Josephus said, it was, you know, as tall as the temple. It could be seen even from uh, the Mount of Olives, uh, just the top uh, upper part. So it's ripped. The idea is that God ripped it. God said, that which is inaccessible is now accessible. I am making myself wide open to mankind, who, if they want to come into my presence, they can. They have to come through one person, only one way, through Jesus Christ, but all they have to do is believe in Him, trust in Him, right. and, um, and they'll have access. So God made what was difficult, 
now easy and accessible. Incredible. So, you know, we learn of God's generosity uh, in, in making it simple that all we have to do is just believe. That's right. And then again, I go back to Hebrews, one of my favorite books that talks about Jesus as a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's now our high priest. He's our mediator, the one mediator between God and man. We don't need a priest anymore. We have Christ. He's the mediator who reconciled us to God. All those themes just pick right back up. And also on the office of the prophet, right, Skip? Because we talk about a new prophet. We had prophets in the Old Testament. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets all pointing to Jesus Christ. And Hebrews again, and Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus being the final prophet. Can you speak to that office that Christ holds now that again was predicted in the Old Testament and foreshadowed him? Yeah, you know, um, I, you mentioned Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews begins by making that statement that God in times past spoke to our fathers through the prophets but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Yes. That is, once and for all, God has given a message. The prophets hinted at it, but now God gave his final word to mankind through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the prophets came and predicted uh, a number of things, including the fact that Jesus would come, and there was an office of the prophet. Uh, Moses... Um, said that God would send, in Deuteronomy 18, God will send a prophet like me to the people, uh, him you shall hear. So Moses predicts another prophet will come, not like the prophets of old, for there were many, but one like him who would be a mediator of a covenant, and he said, him you shall hear. Hmm. So the Jews believed that what Moses was referring to was the coming Mashiach, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Chosen One. That is why when John the Baptist came to the Jordan River and started baptizing people, they thought that is the one that Moses was speaking about. So the first, the first words out of, out of their mouth, they came to John and they said, Are you the prophet? Are you the one Moses spoke about? And he mm-hmm. goes, No, I am not. And, uh, and he pointed to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they always equated the prophet with the Messiah because of what Moses predicted that would come to the people to deliver, to mediate a covenant, and the one that the people of Israel needed to listen to. Wow, that is so interesting. So when you have the New Testament, now we have Jesus. Jesus is born, and you have the, you know, John the Baptist is foretelling him and, and pointing to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have the baptism of Jesus. Now his ministry begins. And I think there are people who do question, why was it that the Jewish people, knowing what they knew about the Jewish law and Jewish history and all of the sacrifices, could not put two and two together and recognize that this was the Messiah that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Obviously, there's a spiritual component to it, but what do you think about the fact that it took so long even for the disciples to understand who Jesus was? They had an anticipation. Of course, you know, they knew about the Messiah. There was an expectation of the Messiah, but their rabbis taught them, especially during Roman occupation, to see the Messiah as a, as a deliverer from the yoke of Rome, from the bondage of the oppressors, and 
as the strong deliverer, which the Bible does predict that he will do. He will, he will um, destroy his enemies. He will set up Israel uh, over the world. He will mediate um, that new world order from Jerusalem over the Jewish people. So they anticipated a conquering Messiah, not a dying Messiah. And what the Bible pictures or portrays or predicts Essentially, you could sum up the Bible in one, one overarching theme. It speaks about one person and two events. The Bible speaks about the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the two events are his first coming to deal with sin and his second coming to rule and reign with those who have been cleansed from sin. Right. Well, they only saw the second coming. That was in their mind. Even though it is predicted, that's why Jesus said to those two on the road to Emmaus, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written, ought not the Messiah to have suffered and entered into his glory? Mm-hmm. And so then he began to share the bloodline with them, how all these um, foreshadows and all these prophets, Isaiah, Psalm 22, all spoke of a suffering Messiah. Well, they didn't see that. They only saw the kingdom. So if you fast forward to modern Judaism, you know, the Bible says that, that the, the Israel is blind and they can't see the truth. And, you know, we often wonder, why can't they see the truth? But we have to understand the whole system of Judaism is based upon uh, um, securing one's own righteousness. Paul put it this way, that they go about trying to establish their own righteousness so that they negate or push away the righteousness of God. So you have a whole system that is built on self-righteousness. And, you know, I'm going to go to the temple, I'm bar mitzvah, I go to the synagogue, I keep the rituals. It's sort of like anybody in Christianity who thinks they can get saved by um, baptism, confirmation, going to mass, going to church. Yes. It's it, you know, there's basically two religions in the whole world. Religion A is the religion of, of um, uh, self-motivation and self-authentication. Um, it, it's self-accomplishment. The other one is divine accomplishment. Hmm. Either you do it for yourself or God does it for you. And almost all religions can be placed into the first category of, uh, you know, self um, doing it on your own, and only biblical Christianity can be is divine accomplishment. Yeah. So the reason the Jews don't get it is because they're so locked into establishing their own righteousness. The idea of a free gift is is they, it just it's a cultural divide to them. Oh, it is. That's really well said. And I think of the Apostle Paul talking about if anybody could have been saved by obeying the law, it would have been me. And goes through all his credentials. I was a Pharisee. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. And yet that is human nature. There's something in me that's basically good, Skip, and God will appreciate that in the final analysis. And for those who really don't understand the blood of Jesus and why we need it, how would you communicate the need for the blood of Jesus, especially for those who are listening who say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not really sure I care? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, most people do believe that God is like their school teacher, that they're going to do their best, and hopefully God grades on a curve, like my school teacher graded on a curve. You know, yes. I'm not as bad as those people. I'm better than a lot of people. And um, what, what, 
the reason blood has to be shed and the reason that Jesus' blood is accepted by God is because our sin is that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wonder, well, you know, you know how, how bad is my life? How bad is my sin? God will forgive me. All you have to do is look at the cross. Your sin did that to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he had to die because he was taking our sin. So sin kills God. Sin separated Jesus from God during that time. It's that bad that it requires an eternal separation of you from God, or you let Jesus be separated for those three hours, six hours on the cross, and then you are brought into the presence of God. So, so it's, it's the reason people don't understand the blood of Christ and the need for redemption through blood is because they don't understand how bad their condition really is. They don't see how sick they are. And finally, they go to the doctor, and the doctor says, it's terminal. You're not going to make it. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's why this book is so important. Bloodline, Tracing God's Rescue Plan from Eden to Eternity. Pastor Skip Heitzig with us. Skip, great to talk to you. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Janet. God bless you. You too. We'll be back. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. In John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this is a really important verse for us to understand, because if we are to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, then we have to know God as he really is, not as a divine genie or a mere pal or a mean or vindictive deity, but as the holy triune God who loved the world so much that he gave us his son. How do we rid ourselves, though, of the caricatures that can confuse our understanding of God's awesome nature and character. We're going to talk about this today with Sid Brestel, who's a retired pastor who served a number of churches for nearly 50 years, and we'll be discussing his book called God in His Own Image. Sid, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And, you know, I just appreciate the way you shared that opening with John 5 and how we just need to have God as he really is. Yeah, well, that really is the theme of the book, isn't it? That we don't get to invent God. We have to actually accept his revelation of himself and as God. Correct. His, his, not, his attributes are not a box of chocolates. I can't pick my favorite. <laughs> That's right. Well, I tend to hoard dark chocolate and, and ignore the rest, and I can't do that with God. Yeah. Or nothing. I agree with you there. What What has been the, the case in your pastoral ministry over the years, the observations that you have made along the way about the way that people do tend to caricature God? Growing up, Janet, uh, back in when I first began the ministry in the late 60s and 70s, at least in the Midwest, I think there were more of us it was the harsher side of God. I used a, a phrase "cosmic cop" in the in the book. I think more of them had that uh, than a God to enjoy. You know, I think of uh, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Our chief purpose and aim is to know God and enjoy Him right. forever. Right. And that word "enjoy" would have would have clashed with what I had grown up with. I think today it's swinging to the other extreme. Uh, we want a God that's safe, manageable. We love His loving kindness. We love His mercy. We love His grace. And we may not preach against His holiness or His wrath, 
but we tend to ignore it. Hmm. Not politically correct. No, that that's right. Well. Yeah. Do you think that that has coincided with this movement that we've seen in the last couple of decades to we want to reach out to non-Christians, so we don't want to present a God that's going to make himself look bad? Is that really what you think is driving some of that, at least? Uh, it certainly facilitates it. Um, whether it's a deliberate choice or because I've made this uh, philosophy of ministry, it's just natural then that I don't talk about the harsher attributes. I'm afraid that more often than not, it's a deliberate choice. Let's don't talk about that because it might offend somebody. You know, I wonder how often people, at least here in the Northwest, who attend church regularly ever would hear the word hell Hmm. today. It just doesn't sell well. No. And yet it's there. It's a reality. Well, exactly. It's kind of funny. I have made the remark several times when people talk about oh, the old hell and brimstone, you know, hellfire and brimstone preachers. And I said, I wish I knew, I wish I knew a few because I don't know that I could probably count more than one hand's worth of hell and fire brimstone, hellfire and brimstone preachers because they just they're not so much around. And maybe they were in former days, but not so much in my lifetime. And yet Jesus talked more about hell than a lot of other subjects. Isn't that interesting in how we can ignore that? Yeah. You, know, you talk about the hellfire brimstone. You probably still have a few there in the south, Texas, etc. Well, you get up here in the northwest. Uh, I don't know if there's any of us left. Mm. That's what I grew up with, though, yeah. hellfire and brimstone. And that's, that's harmful if we don't balance that with mercy and grace. On the other hand, without his wrath, mercy and grace have no meaning. Right. I don't need mercy if God isn't just. Right. I don't need uh, grace if God doesn't punish. And so I think I use the analogy, I do use the analogy or the metaphor in the book. Grace and mercy and loving kindness are like beautiful diamond gems. But they shine the brightest when we put them on the black background yep. and then put the light of God's Word on them like right. diamonds. They're brilliant. And the black background are the harsher attributes of God. Right. Well, so the book was built really on on two words in Romans eleven twenty two, where Paul is talking about Gentiles being grafted in, where the Jewish, the nation of Israel, was cut out of the olive tree. He says, "Behold the kindness and the severity of God." Yes. And those two words are poles apart, and yet God throws or Paul throws them side by side. Behold God's kindness and severity. We need both. Well, we do. And I I note that you go into what severity really means. And what did you discover about that actual word and how people should understand what it means? Thank you for asking. You know, I, I didn't know this until I began to write the book. Even writing the book, as I share in the preface, was never part of my bucket list. <laughs> but when I began to look at that verse, uh, uh, I looked at those words, and I found out that the word severity only appears in Romans eleven twenty two, and it appears twice in that same verse. Now, there are adjectives that come from the same root in some other passages that Paul writes. My point is, why would he use the word severity instead of common words like wrath hmm. and anger? And so this very severe word, uh, it was, I found that it was used in the first century in a legal document where the attorney says the law was enforced to its fullest extent. So we have a God who, who doesn't say, well, boys will be boys, I'll just uh, uh, I'll forget it this time, or I'll cut the punishment back. So severity is a very, very harsh word, and, he, and Paul throws it out there 
That is really important, though, because when you consider what Christ did for us in fulfilling the law and also being the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world through his shed blood, that means that God did not relax the standard. He made Jesus pay the full price. That means even more than when you're looking at what Jesus did. I hadn't thought of that, and I appreciate you sharing that. If we ever, ever, if we ever want to see God's severity, go to the cross. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. And an innocent person is doing it because of mercy and grace and love. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, you know, when you talk about the goodness and the severity of God, as you say, we have this tendency in the church to sometimes camp out on one of those words or the other. Yeah. What do you say to people about what God is like? Clearly, his attributes and divine nature are revealed in the pages of Scripture. How would you explain to somebody a balanced explanation of God's character that that does not take any shortcuts and doesn't leave out anything? Hmm. Obviously, I would tell them, look at the book, uh, Scripture, not necessarily uh, some sermon online or some something in some it release online. Look at the, the whole Bible. Um, even, even that journey of Moses that I talk about in the second chapter, the first encounter with God was threatening. Take off your shoes, it's holy ground. Yeah. I can't imagine the fear that Moses was experiencing. And the second time he encounters God, they're on the road to Egypt, and and he's prepared to kill Moses. Now, that's severity. Hmm. But if you follow that journey of Moses through the, the book of Exodus, you find him getting so familiar that the phrase is used, he spoke as man to man, or man with man, when God spoke to him. Hmm. And then Moses gets so courageous, he says, I want to see your glory. Now, there's a man who saw both sides and came to love and appreciate and respect both sides, the harsh and the severe, or the harsh and the uh, gentle, kind nature of God. Yes, he did. And and yet that changed over time, as you point out. His perception of the Lord started out one way, but it was as God revealed who he really was that Moses began to Mm -hmm. understand. As I mean, this is true for us as well in a much more modified way than Moses, clearly. But sometimes it takes a while for us as Christians to to have that kind of fellowship with the Lord and see him working in ways that make us understand, wow, you're greater than I imagined, Lord. Hmm. You know, we call ourselves Christ followers, that suggests journey, traveling. I think for every one of us, we may start the journey with a certain perspective perspective of God that may be not quite square with Scripture. And as we grow, as we stay in the Word, that uh, misperception corrects, whether it be starting severe and learning His grace, or growing up in a very lotionly liberal home where discipline was very light. Yep. Yeah, hang on just a moment. Sid Brestow, we're going to go to a break. God in His Own Image is the book. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. 
the other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Sid Brestel, who is the author of God in His Own Image, Loving God for Who He Is, not what we, not who we want Him to be. And that's a really important thing that we all need to grasp. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And Sid, you were mentioning that, you know, we have both extremes. We have people who tend to see God as a harsh taskmaster, and that's all they really understand is the harshness or the severity of God, as Romans eleven twenty two points out. And on the other side, side of the fence, you have people who will say, oh, God is love and God would never send anybody to hell. And you do use Moses as an example, and you show how his experiences changed his first impression of God. So when he gets to the point of saying to the Lord, you know, I want to see your glory. What does that reveal to you about what Moses finally grasped about God? I think my answer would be, look at what God says to Moses. You can't see my glory. No one can do that and live. That talks about a a God that is transcendent. I can't put him in a box. I can't completely understand or comprehend him. But God says, you'll see as I pass by. And then as he passes by, he introduces himself to Moses. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. I'm the existent one, self-existent. And then he says, I, I'm the God who delights. And he, he first shares the softer attributes. I delight mm-hmm. in loving kindness. I, I delight in justice. I delight, in, I delight in righteousness. These are the things I love to do. I'm forgiving to to uh, a, a thousand generations. And then, to, uh, and then he turns around and says, but I will not spare. And then he's specifically talking, I think, in that ca- a case about idolatry. Those who once knew him or have been taught about him and then create an idol. But then comes out the harsher attributes. And I, w- I would discipline even to the third and fourth generation. So he exaggerates and first introduces his love. He wants to be known as a loving God. 
you mentioned a while ago, God is love. That's a verse in, in the Bible that mm-hmm. describes God. But I think we have a def- definition of love, always kind, always good, always gentle, never mad, never angry. And that isn't necessarily love. So, so I think when God introduces himself, he, he, he's telling me, I want you to appreciate me as a, an approachable, loving God, but respect me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our God is a consuming fire, we, right? We may be, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was thinking of Hebrews saying our God is a consuming fire, and that brings back yeah, the story yeah. of Moses in the burning bush. I mean, we see it in, all over the yeah. Old Testament, too. Correct, yeah. Well, it's interesting because our culture also adds some confusion, doesn't it, about who God is. We have not only a plurality of religions uh, expressed among people who are living in this country and throughout the world, clearly. But how do you see culture getting in the way of our view of God, even as Christians? Because you, you would think that every Christian would have a very true view of God and not get unbalanced as to his kindness or his severity, but culture does play a part. And I'm wondering what your thoughts have been on the influence of culture on how we see God. To me, the most obvious is we can no longer sharing the gospel with somebody, use the word God and assume they're thinking about the same person I am. Hmm. When I grew up, even though kids didn't go to church, we had the same view of God, the God of scripture. Right. Today, with uh, the, the eclectic, eclectic religions that we have, with New Age religion, with so many Eastern religions coming in, you have to just define who God is. He's a person, not an influence. He's a person who relates to us. He's not just, I'm not just his servant. I can be his child. So I think culture, because of its move toward political correctness, mm-hmm kind of pushes us toward, well, we don't want to say anything that might rock the boat. Uh, let's just soften it up, and especially until they become believers, and then we can tell them the rest of the truth. <laughs> so they're coming to know or trust a God that they don't even understand. Right. I love what Jesus says in John seventeen three in his high priestly prayer there uh, before the garden and before the arrest and the crucifixion. He says, you have given to me all those that you have chosen. Yep. that I might give them eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the eternal God. That's great. Uh, and so we've been introducing people, and even in today, we've got to stop and clarify who this person is, and really emphasize that he is a person, because with uh, uh, the New Age movement and some of the other philosophies, God becomes impersonal, almost pantheistic, rather than the God that you mentioned, tri- tri- triune God. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that that's what God would have us do is to explain him correctly to people. And, and you also see this, don't you, with, with Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, where you have the meek and mild baby in the manger, you know, the sentimentality that you sometimes have people uh, hang on to at Christmas time, especially. But the contrast of that is Jesus is the conquering king of Revelation. So what about wow. explaining to people, reconciling? the truth about Jesus. Yes, he did come as a helpless baby, but revelation is also true. And, and that's what Hebrews is saying, that Christ is the perfect reflection of what the Father is like. If I want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. <sighs> the people that say, I don't like the angry God of the Older Testament, I love Jesus. Which Jesus? <laughs> you know, in that one chapter, I asked them, what's your favorite picture? What's your favorite memory of Jesus? Is he the lion? 
or the lamb. Mm-hmm. You see the shepherd with the little lamb in his arms is the the man sitting on a on a seat and with little children on his lap, uh, blessing them. Or is he the the man walking through the seven churches in the book of Revelation? Mm-hmm. And critically evaluating each church, commending the things that are still positive, not only criticizing, but warning, severely warning the churches, even some of them, it would result in the extinction. And then move through the book of Revelation and see this lion, now the king, royal king, riding on a war horse with blood on his robe, and king of kings and lord of lords. We have to take, we have to accept Jesus both sides too. And I think again, we tend to love Jesus in the manger, Jesus uh, rubbing the little children's hair, uh, Jesus feeding the five thousand, Jesus touching a leper. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love preaching about that passage in Luke, where he reached out and touched a man who probably hadn't felt a human touch for years. Right. But I also have to appreciate he's the Jesus that rebukes the Pharisees for being hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, who grabs a whip and begins to drive them out of the temple, accusing them of turning the Father's house into a den of thieves. He's my Jesus, too. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and and you cannot, again, we, we don't have the ability to wipe away characteristics of God that we find to be uncomfortable because that isn't how it works. I think, again, we have this tendency, to, we want to be the potter and we want God to be the clay, just a little bit. <laughs> We'd like to shave off those characteristics that make us uncomfortable. That's not how it works. We're, we, are the, we are the clay. He is the potter. The subtitle of the book, Loving God for Who He Is, not who he would, what we would like him to be, or who we would like him to be. He is who he is. I can't remake him into my image. I love the quote. I think that it was Drew Dick gave in the endorsements. Mark Twain makes the statement: "God created us in His image, and now we're trying to do Him a favor by creating Him in our image." Right. Someone say, somebody we can manage. Yeah, and that's not not the way it is. It's not truth to convey God that way. That's right. Sid, what would you say in the final analysis when you talk about the importance of enjoying God, going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, enjoying God forever? That seems to be, for some people, a hang-up. Well, wait a minute. Okay, I can worship God, and I can believe in God, and I can believe the gospel, and I can be transformed by the Holy Spirit because I have faith in Jesus Christ. How do I enjoy God in my day-to-day Christian life? I enjoy my wife more after 53 years by spending time with her. I know her deeply now. I enjoy her more. It's a relationship. It's the same thing with God. As I am willing to be open and read the Word of God and accept what He says when He reveals Himself and what He says and what He does, I I come to that point, I believe, where I'm comfortable with Him. I can enjoy Him, both with the severity with the severity as as well as with the kindness. Okay. I, I love Isaiah 40. It's uh, talking about the Babylonian invasion, imminent. Horrible things are going to happen. He describes the horrendous uh, cost of life. Chapter 40 begins with, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Hmm. And the response comes back, What can I say? What should I say? In verse 10, the answer was, Shout from the mountaintop. 
Behold Your God. Oh, that is tremendous. Well, the book is called God in His Own Image. Sid Brestel is our guest and the author of this great book. And it was so good to have you here, Sid. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you, Janet, for the opportunity. My pleasure. God bless you. Thanks a lot for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.